It took two months for us to know the name Ahmad Arbery. It took two months for the legal system to work on his behalf by arresting the men who took his life unnecessarily. And as a black American watching this unfold, especially at the time this that we are living in, you know, it's just very disheartening because, you know, we want the legal system to work for all, but we know that's just not the case. And when it comes to concepts such as lynching, which is what we're focusing today on this episode, is we have to go back to the past and understand what has been done when it comes to things such as lynching. And the concept of lynching, we're talking about how people take ordinary matters or justice, quote unquote, into their hands instead of allowing the legal process to do it themselves. So today I have one of my dear friends who's going to break down the history of lynching to us, talk about the work that has been done towards it when we're talking about the anti-lynching bill that was passed this February and the legacies health-wise that lynching has left on our country and our lives. And I'm hoping that it um, changes your mindset towards the work that we have done and the progress that we need to do going forward. So stay tuned. And let's get to this. Welcome to another episode of Coloring Health Policy. Today I have with me is Damar Lewis, and we are going to cover the history of lynching in the context of Damar Arbery. I'm pretty sure now this is not just, you know, national news in America, but this is now international news. Ahmad Arbery was jogging in his, you know, local area. It was not a new place that he was jogging in. And he was killed by um, individuals who felt that he, because he was jogging, he must have been a robber or someone who was up to crime. And it's such a common story that, you know, we in America where we have people who take on the legal system upon themselves before actually seeking that. So today with me, like I mentioned before, I have Damar Lewis. Hey, Damar, do you want to introduce yourself? Thanks for having me here, Faith. I am a doctoral student at Yale University in sociology and African-American studies. And broadly, what my research is concerned with is looking at the health consequences of policing, incarceration, and historical racial violence. Yeah. So give, tell us a little bit more about that, because I'm pretty sure that just piques a lot of people's interest. Like, what exactly are you studying, like, in terms of, like, your dissertation? Sure. So I guess... Those are slightly different answers to those questions. But, Mm. you know, for me, I think um, I had a lot of different experiences prior to becoming a doctoral student, Um, you know, working in corporate America and finance or doing some things in consulting. But I also spent Mm. some time working in nonprofit spaces, too, you know, organizations that are providing human services or other public health organizations. 
um, where, you know, I got a chance to, you know, work with people who were directly impacted by the criminal justice system. So people who are formerly incarcerated or cycling in and out of the system. And so that kind of pushed me to, you know, eventually go to policy school um, at the University of Michigan, where I got to kind of hone in on some more of those interests. And so, you know, for me, um, you know, I came to Michigan, you know, interested in criminal justice policy more broadly, but thinking about, you know, how can we change the way that the system works? You know, how can we try to reconcile and like evolve the relationship that a lot of communities have with, you know, or institutions like the police? And one of the things that I realized um, in the process of being in policy school was that, well, in order to make really uh, sound decisions about, you know, where we need to go from here, we have to understand where we've been and we have to understand mm-hmm. how we got here. Right. So we need to understand, like, is the you know, are the policies or are the things that we're going to recommend to address different social problems? How is that connected or not connected to what's already happened? Right. So mm-hmm. for me, you know, I say all that is that because for me in the research I've taken up as a doctoral student, you know, I try to understand the past in order to make better sense of the present. And so, you know, as it relates to my dissertation work, um, I'm going to be doing uh, a three, well, a three article dissertation. So I have an option of doing, but three different articles that are um, different case studies focused on police accountability. And mm. so, you know, but from a comparative and a historical lens. And so one of those studies is looking at the Justice for Victims of Lynching Act and trying to think about what is the not only trying to understand the symbolism of the act, but also trying to understand kind of organizations that were a part of the historical anti-lynching movement, one of which is Tuskegee University, who is mm. often not really talked about the role that they played and kind of mobilizing the anti-lynching movement or supporting it rather. But, you know, in this particular article, I try to understand and unpack the motivations for their work to try to make better sense of how we should think about the Justice for Victims of Lynching Act or the Emmett Till Act now. And the other pieces of uh, the projects are one of which is focused on trying to understand different factors that influence decisions like the criminal convictions of police officers. Right. So in thinking about police accountability, one of the things we see is police are killing folks. Right. But we and we see that, you know, sometimes they go to trial, sometimes they don't. And then when they go to trial, a lot of times they get let off or they don't get convicted. Um, and then there's times that they do. So part of what that particular article is trying to think about is, you know, beyond just looking at factors of like, was somebody unarmed or was somebody uh, the incident or the shooting like captured on camera, I'm trying to think about like what are other structural determinants or other legal determinants that are influence, potentially influencing prosecuting outcomes. And then the final piece of my work right now is is looking at, or at least of the dissertation project, as it were, is um, looking at how how black communities think about police accountability, right? Both, mm. but particularly trying to understand like how people's different lived experiences or the migration journeys they've had, you know, within the United States and even outside of the United States. How does that shape the way that they think about the police, but also the way they think about the relationships that black communities have with the police right now? And, you know, ultimately with that particular project, you know, I'm not just interested in, well, what do people think, where did everything is right now? But also how do we think about where we need to go, right? 
So yeah, that's kind of a broad sketch of my dissertation work. But, you know, beyond that, you know, I do do some work on incarceration, particularly on pretrial detention, because it's something that we talk about mass incarceration and the health consequences associated with once people have been convicted. But we don't talk about, you know, the first point of contact, which is when people get arrested and then they go to Mm. jail before they hit trial. Right. Because sometimes people might end up in there for you know, a few months, a few days, or even, you know, a handful of years before they're ever sentenced. So yeah, you're just doing amazing work. And that's why I was so excited to have you on the podcast. I just want to start, like you said, like everything that we're seeing now, there was a point that we have to figure out where does it start? So I want to go back in history, take our time and kind of figure out and when did lynching like start? You know, when, when did it um arise? And what was the environment that allowed for lynching to take place, especially in America? Oh, that's a great question. So it's a great question. And the answer is somewhat complicated. But here's why. Mm-hmm. So lynching isn't something that necessarily or it's something that's very specific to the United States of America. But it's not something that necessarily just originated here. There's a great book or several great books, but there's a great uh, particular book. Um, it's edited by a historian named Christopher Waldrop called Lynching in America. But one of the things that it talks about the history of lynching in America depends on where you're talking about. So, mm. you know, for instance, the United States wasn't hasn't always existed the way that it does right now. Right. So before, you know, the British and, you know, the Spanish and others came to essentially colonize, you know, America, you know, this was indigenous land. Right. And so as as it was indigenous land and as, you know, Europeans fought to take control of this land, the country started to to change. Right. Or territory started to change. Right. Mm. So there's this way in which territorial conflict plays a role in in kind of mobilizing certain forms of violence, you know, not just the violence of genocide, right, but also thinking about, well, you know, once uh, the 13 colonies became the 13 colonies, what was it like there, right? What was the relationship like between, you know, the British um, and other, you know, colonizers and, you know, the indigenous communities who were here, right? What was the relationship between them and folks who were enslaved? There's this way in which the relationship of lynching is fundamentally tied to citizenship. Mm. And so why I say that is that, you know, uh, because that we're, we're not dealing with the sophisticated country we have now, there's different parts of, you know, what is now the United States where, you know, there were just people who were there. There wasn't, you know, these huge like public health infrastructures. There wasn't, you know, these sophisticated criminal justice systems. You know, there were just people and they were living and they were essentially they essentially had to decide for themselves, you know, how they wanted to handle social transgressions. Right. Mm. And so part of the history of lynching in this country has to deal with, you know, how people handle conflict disputes. Right. And Mm. so, you know, what was the punishment for stealing a horse, you know, or what was the punishment for you know, somebody committing another kind of heinous offense. And so I guess for me and part of my work, I try to think about like, how is it, how are citizenship politics evolving alongside American statehood? Because Mm. for me, the way I understand lynching, I particularly pay attention to it 
after 1776 because at that point, that was the earliest point at which the United States could essentially call itself the United States without being, you know, under the jurisdiction of another country's sovereignty. And even then, there's a lot of historians who will say, you know, in the early 1800s, the United States still wasn't the United States because the U.S. was still fighting with the British and they were still fighting with the Spanish, right? And because, yeah. again, the United States hasn't fully been in existence. So I'm, I'm given this context to say that some of the earliest cases of lynching that, you know, would be recognizable to a contemporary audience that I've come across in my research, you know, and also through the research of other scholars, um, there were two cases that came up in uh, in the early 1800s in Missouri. One was in 1803. There was a lynching of a, of a Native American man. And then in 1818, there was a lynching of an African-American man. But mm-hmm. those are the earliest cases. And I think as you move through the 1800s and you look at like state expansions, right, and you look at, you know, territorial disputes, you'll see that those sites of conflict are also sites, you know, not just of genocide, not just of racial violence generally, but those are also states and territories and communities where lynching started to happen. You know, and so another example I like to give is when the state of California Well, when California became California, effectively, Mm. was in what, like 1848, 1849. Prior to that, you wouldn't see a person who was labeled as Mexican lynched in the United States. It doesn't mean that they didn't happen, but they're not very well documented. But once that happened, you know, after the Treaty of Guadalupe, you'll see that in, you know, 1849 or 1850 or 1851, you're likely to see the lynching of someone who was Mexican. Or, you know, in the 1880s, you're likely to see lynchings of people who are Chinese or Japanese, because, again, at that point, you know, it's westward expansion. Right. And likewise, like we know there's a long legacy of lynching in the South, which is where I think some people might contest how I'm thinking about lynching. Is because, you know, it's really hard to distinguish lynchings historically, you know, from the founding of this country or from when people enslaved peoples were in this country from state executions of slaves. Right. Like it's a really fine line to distinguish what's a lynching, what's not. But lynchings are, you know, obviously have happened also throughout the South, you know, very much, you know, tied to the desire to suppress the mobility of African-Americans and even, you know, post-emancipation, you know, to suppress people into back into slave-like conditions or through the institution of Jim Crow to remind them that, you know, segregation wasn't just, you know, a facet of life, but it was something that was all-encompassing, that they could never escape. And at any point in time, you know, people could be led to premature death. And so, you know, for me, I try to, again, try to tie these back to like a focus on citizenship, because for me, I'm able to then use that to trace, you know, connections between, you know, not just the history of lynching violence, but also like how that history is tied to, you know, the histories that, you know, many people, uh, historically marginalized peoples in this country have had, and also what we experience today. Yeah, that was an amazing summary of just, you know, lynching in general. And I, and I love how you opened it up because when we think about lynching, um, especially the way that it's portrayed in history to us, we don't think about just affecting, we have, we think it's only affecting African Americans or Black Americans. We never really think about how it was present in other more marginalized communities, which you worded very well. 
And um, I want to transition to, you know, now we understand what, you know, lynching is in a better context and with all the context you gave. I just want to talk more about the work that Ida B. Wells has um, done, as well as you mentioned, the Tuskegee University. And the reason why I want to talk more in depth about that is, you know, I thought it was very ironic with um, how the protests and things were going on with Ahmaud Arbery and Ida B. Wells was awarded the Pulitzer at the same time, posthumously for her work to deal with anti-lynching. And that's how I wanted to talk about this and just the work that Tuskegee has done and what she's done to kind of combat lynching. Yeah, no, I think that that was, um, I found that quite interesting as well. But I think, to be honest, that probably has a lot to do with, you know, the advocacy efforts of different Mm. people who've been fighting to preserve her legacy, you know, over time. And so, you know, I was just looking right now and I can't find her name off of hand, but one person who comes to mind is Ida B. Wells' granddaughter. But she's somebody who, you know, even over the couple of years that I followed her, you know, has pushed this the city of Chicago to, you know, commemorate Ida B. Wells' legacy and to pay homage to the work that she's done you know, to advance racial justice um, and to, you know, advance the welfare of black communities more generally. Right. And I also think about, you know, Hannah Nicole Jones, Nicole Hannah Jones, excuse me, and the work, you know, she's done to uplift Ida B. Wells' legacy, you know, and she more or less refers to herself kind of as like Ida B. Wells' protege. And I think that, you know, with all of the focus on her work, it, you know, that, that the politics of that kind of it made sense to me a, a little bit of why that's happening. But I also do think it is ironic because, you know, she wasn't somebody who was always well-received, right? Yes. Um, she's somebody who in her lifetime, you know, she was a journalist mm-hmm. and she, it, were it not for the lynching of some of her close friends, we would not know Ida B. Wells the way that we know Ida B. Wells, or we would know a different version of Ida B. Wells because it was, you know, her being directly impacted, you know, by this violence that ultimately catapulted her career in journalism to be what it was, right? It compi- it, it mobilized her to produce the Red Record in 1895, which is one of the earliest and most sophisticated analysis of lynching, you know, to date. At that time, you know, it pushed her to, you know, start her own company in the Chicago Tribune, right? And to continue to be an advocate for for racial justice. But also, I think it's important to say, you know, her politic of racial justice was not was not separate from her polit from her sexual politics, right? So her mm-hmm. politics of racial justice were very much tied to her politics of um, women's suffrage because she also yeah. realized that there is a very particular gender politic involved with lynchings, particularly lynchings Mm. in the South and particularly lynchings of African-Americans in that, you know, rape was always alleged as, or it was often alleged as the primary reason why somebody should be lynched or like Mm. that was the alleged crime that somebody committed. And so she spent her, you know, her life dispelling that notion Right. Dispelling the notion that, you know, people, black people were even raping white women, let alone raping white women more than white men were. Mm. Right. And that was something that was she was able to use as a, a rhetorical tool, but also as a political mobilization, a tool of political mobilization to, to get white people to see like the fallacy of lynching. Um, because she's somebody who was very much attuned to what she would call white lies, which is, you know, 
the way that white people, people in power would essentially manipulate the power that they had, you know, to suppress the mobility of black people. And so, you know, throughout the even through the early uh, 20th century in her work, in her advocacy, you know, she was very much involved with the women's suffrage movement, but with a very particular focus on, you know, black women's politics, which mm. is why you talk to, you know, a lot of any historian now or someone who studies black history or black feminist politics. Black Ida B. Wells is a black feminist. Mm. She's the epitome of that. She falls in line with the Mariah Stewart's of the world and other women who also took up their their mantle of racial justice aligned with the recognition of, you know, the feminist politic that was, you know, denied to black women. You know, if you think about it in so many words, it's like Kimberly Crenshaw's politic of intersectionality without calling it intersectionality. These were things that Ida B. Wells and other black women of her time were very much attuned to, you know, though the way that they carried that conversation wasn't necessarily always, you know, in the courtroom or focused on the courts, but focused on what, you know, what's happening in civil society. Yeah. I think that was that was beautifully worded because of her advocacy, you know, never like letting up on these issues. It was always mentioned in the press. It's on the tongues and, and minds of people in conversation. But this is the question, you know, it's always on Main Street. It's always a t- topic of conversation. We always see it in the media when we see um, in the context of America, like a black man either being killed by a police officer or a black man being killed by another American citizen. And we never really feel like we get justice. And I want to take this like a turn towards policy, but looking at it from a historical lens, I I feel like I have the question that many Americans have is like, why did it take us 120 years to really pass an anti-lynching bill? Um, And that was not that was just passed in February, if we're just being really honest. And so why lynching was not considered a federal crime for 120 years in this country? Yeah, no, that's um, I think that's a very important question of this time. And it's a very important question in light of, you know, what we came here to talk about today. I think what I want to say first to make sure that we're um, in full transparency mm. is that the, the bill is still proposed legislation. So what Mm. has been approved by the House of Representatives, what has been approved by the Senate are proposed bills. They're things Mm. that the Senate and and, uh, Congress effectively has said they will support. But it will still take an acting president to make these anti-lynching bills like actual law. Mm. Why I say that is because it's important to understand that. And then under, to also understand kind of the significance of, you know, this moment that we're witnessing as we're living through this, you know, we're, we're watching it happening in front of us. You know, George White was a, a black Republican congressman in North Carolina. And, and he was, per the records I've seen and different analyses that have been done, he was the first person to propose a an anti-lynching bill mm-hmm. in the in the 20th century for sure for certain but he's often who people remember when they think about earliest proposals of anti-lynching legislation when he proposes in 1900 there's a great write-up about this in the washington post where it talked about how he wrote about this in the aftermath of the wilmington north carolina race riots mm-hmm. something that he witnessed you know as a north carolinian himself 
but it's something that mobilized him to push Congress to act and to understand. So then, so then think about this. He's a black, he's a black congressman Mm. in the wake of reconstruction in, you know, in Washington, DC, trying to advocate for racial justice, trying to advocate for civil rights or for civil protections for African-Americans. That's a hard environment to be in. Absolutely. It didn't necessarily win him any friends. And in particular, like it, his proposal in the house, his proposal never left the house. Mm. So in, in, they talk about this a little bit in the, um, the Washington Post story was, you know, after he proposed this bill, it got killed in the house. He left Congress. He didn't run for Congress. He didn't go Mm. for reelection. He decided to dedicate his life to other things. But part of why I talk about this is that the long history of um, anti-lynching legislation or like the mobilization of advocacy around this, it has a very complicated history. But the complicated history is aligned with, again, the citizenship politics and the fight for civil rights that has always been a part of the American project. Right. Mm. After him, you know, you have organizations like the NWCP who partnered with for, with different congressmen, uh, Gavigan or Dyer to, mm-hmm. you know, promote yep. like the Dyer anti-lynching acts or like the Gavigan Dyer anti-lynching acts, you know, which and there's a, you know, a wave of them um, transpired over, you know, 50 or so year history. But it, it was through advocacy with these organizations, with the NWCP primarily being the driver, you know, they were able to keep this an active conversation with different states, right? And trying to woo, to win them over to support different causes, right? To, to, to support, you know, the, the civil rights of African Americans and of other people who are directly impacted. And, but again, the fight is complicated. The fight is different depending on where you're talking about, right? So, you yeah. know, we're also talking about in the early 20th century, you know, before the Republican, the Republican Party isn't the Republican Party we're talking about now. Yes. We would be talking about the <laughs> Democrats, not. right? Yeah. And so, you know, that's also an important politic to think about is like, well, why is there, why is there opposition to this legislation? Well, not only were there different parties back then, but those parties switched. So mm. then essentially, you know, we're dealing with two political parties who hold very, who hold similar politics when it comes to racial justice or who hold largely overlapping politics, I can say more accurately when it comes to issues of racial justice. And so, you know, with each wave of anti-lynching of the anti-lynching bills that were proposed, some people would fall off. Some people would stay on of the 200 bills that were proposed per my, the, my analysis. And I think a few other scholars, there were four proposed bills that ever left the house. Mm. Most of them were always killed by committee or they just never made it through. Or if they went up to vote, you know, the majority didn't rule in favor. One of the records I came across was a voting record of the House in 1938, where it shows kind of how different states, you know, cast their votes. And what's interesting is that if you were to put up a report card for, you know, and compare those states, you know, support of the anti-lynching legislation in 1938, but also like, you know, their support for different, you know, measures of socioeconomic justice, racial justice. Now you might get mixed results, right? It's mm. not going to be necessarily a linear trend. Um, but again, I think part of that is to do with, you know, one, that being a specific time and place, 
But two, you know, again, it comes back to citizenship politics. And Mm so I think to understand, you know, that and to understand, like, there's a period in time in American history where, you know, organizations like the NAACP, Ida B. Wells, Tuskegee University, they were actively tracking, you know, every day where and when are people being lynched and are people being lynched? Right. And Mm -hmm. they used to fight over is this a lynching? Is it not? Should this be counted as a lynching? Should it not be? And there would be a lot of times where they would agree, but there would also be other cases where they wouldn't agree. And so, you know, why I say that is to say that by the time we hit, you know, the 1940s into the early 1950s, you know, we're starting to see, you know, what we now talk about as the civil rights movement. We're seeing that kind of jumping into the forefront, right? So there is a connection between you know, the the mobile, the political mobilization of the civil rights movement and the suppression of lynching. But mm. it was also something that, you know, people decided this isn't the way we have to live. We can do other things. That's not to say that lynching just disappeared. Mm. But there was a, a way in which there were different power dynamics that also influenced, like, should we be reporting that there's lynchings alongside you know, the support of the 1964, you know, civil rights legislation. Like, should we, should we, like, what is a lynching? It's that thing that we used to do. Mm, We should probably hold off on that. We might want to not want to leak this to the press, right? We might want to just kind of handle this ourselves, or we might want to just keep it under the rug because there's no way that we go from, you know, essentially lynchings kind of falling off the radar in 1968 to then seeing, you know, the emergence of a case of like James Byrd, right, in our yeah. lifetimes when you and I were in like middle school mm-hmm. to, you know, then seeing, you know, other cases that are happening, you know, in 2000s to then get to Ahmad Ahmaud Arbery today. There's no way that like this violence has stopped. I think the way that we talk about it. So you're saying that it, it, it never stopped then. It as, right. It never stopped. But what we called it, how we classified it changed completely. Right. And that's how we get to a moment where if you look at the the way that the bills are structured, both the Senate's bills and the House bills and even the original bill that the Senate proposed in 2018, the motivation for these bills wasn't just the fact that the Senate and Congress had never approved an anti-lynching bill. It wasn't just that. It was also keeping in mind and very attuned to the fact that we're seeing white supremacy on the rise or a rise in white supremacist violence, a rise in hate crimes across the country. We're seeing that, and these things haven't left us. The racism, xenophobia, all this that has motivated people to take the law into their own hands, to enact what they call justice, which for many people is just an experience of death or an experience of terrorism or antagonism, like that has to be addressed. Like you can't not Mm -hmm. say something about that. And so like, that's a very, that's a fundamental motivation for these different bills or proposed bills. And that's something where, you know, given the political moment, you know, the work that Equal Justice Initiative was doing in 2018 with launching the National Museum for Peace and Justice um, and the memorial for um, mass incarceration, it was a time in which they could mobilize, you know, their political capital to right a wrong that should have been done a long time ago, but is in line with the reconciliation efforts that Congress has been pushing for, particularly 
in the early 2000s with the acknowledgments of slavery, you know, with acknowledging the Senate's apology for lynching in 2005, right, for the, you know, the apologies for segregation, Hmm. right? So in that sense, you know, this, 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 these proposed bills, as it relates to the long arc of the anti-lynching movement, you know, there's a story in which they coincide, you know, with the long fight for civil rights and the Mm. long fight for, you know, uh, recognition and the the rights and privileges of U.S. citizenship that, you know, black communities in particular, but many communities have have and continue to fight for to this day. And so, yeah, so I think, you know, when I think about this and I think about the moment that we're in, you know, I think it's important to keep that in mind because that is the way that I guess history is being mobilized into the present, you know, where we can't necessarily relive all those moments, but we can take the past and understand how it gets us to where we are now. And then to then be in a situation where we can at least potentially uh, pass this bill would be fantastic. But more importantly, to acknowledge that this behavior in all of its forms and all the things it's connected to are not tolerated and should not be tolerated in this country. No, that was <laughs> it just it, it's just amazing, you know, when you think about what we've been through as a country and we've have not been around for hundreds of hundreds of years. We've only been around for what, like not even three centuries and the amount of um, time it takes us to right our wrongs in this country is it, it, it's amazing to me and it makes me think you know i understand that you know from a legal perspective what lynching is and and when you're mentioning it from a historical perspective but i also like to bring the health perspective into this as well you know mm-hmm. we this is um when you talk talk about the health impact this has on communities of color because we're expanding that lynching does not just only take place among black Americans, but it takes place around all marginal communities. This is, I think this is a public health issue and uh, it is a public health issue that has been going on for a very, very long time that we don't consider to call it a public health issue. But would you look at it like that? Because it does affect a certain population and it affects the health of that population and their ability to function and feel comfortable. As like you mentioned, this has been tied to citizenship. How how do I feel as an American if I'm not free to basically live as one? Yeah, no, I think if you were to, I'm going to use some public health words that, um, mm-hmm. but also to put it in context, but for anybody who is an epidemiologist or is somebody who, um, you know, studies health consequences, right? As somebody who studies structural racism or white supremacy, as it were, there's no way to, un- like, you have to take an epidemiological perspective of, like, how the past has affected the present because it has, mm. it fundamentally has. We think about um, what is the impact of segregation in the South in the North, in the Midwest, on any community, there are very material, like social economic consequences, but there's also very material health consequences too, where like in likewise, that extends to something like lynching. It extends to, you know, this line of research that um, different scholars in the social sciences primarily, but also some folks in public health are trying to look at, which is looking at, you know, kind of what are the different legacies of lynching? So, you know, from one hand, you know, trying to see, you know, are there correlations between, you know, historical lynching exposure and different um, social social determinants outcomes, you know, be it mortality rates, you know, be it morbidity rates, 
you know, be it, you know, the um, black white school segregation, you know, looking at, you know, the prevalence of homicides or violence more generally in communities that have experienced lynching. You know, oftentimes it's not a universal story where, you know, where lynchings have happened. Those things are always happening at the same level. But what it is a story of is that lynching does have very material health consequences. You know, I, I like to think about this from the using the, the logic model that the Equal Justice Initiative has, which is to say that, you know, all of these systems of violence and oppression have had have led from one to another. Right. You go from one system to system to system. But all of them have had very material health consequences and all of them have impacted the way that our culture and society functions. And so there's no way it's so think about it like from a trauma model. Right. So yeah. the way that the violence of the past produced traumas historically and those traumas produced other traumas that have produced other traumas that have produced other traumas. So there's no way that we could be here in the 21st century and not talk about, you know, what are the traumas that lynching has produced historically? But like, how does that connect with what are the traumas that are being actively produced right now? And so we think about, you know, what it is that communities of colors are up against. You know, we, there's a lot of different communities that we, excuse me, there's a lot of different traumas that we have to navigate, right? And yeah. it's hard to locate sometimes, you know, is this a trauma that's coming from the past versus the present? You know, or is this coming from, you know, last week or today? You know what I mean? But at the same time, it's to say that trauma is something that is very much around us and it does influence, you know, our health. You know, it does influence, you know, how long we live. You know, it does influence, you know, our ability to contract diseases or in COVID-19. It does impact who is more or less susceptible to being in an environment that where they might be predisposed to health conditions that might make it easier for them to contract COVID-19. Now, I'm not, and I say all that to say, not that uh, people's specific racial identity is the marker. It's not. But what it is to say is that the structural environments that people find themselves in, where racial violence has been prevalent, is connected to where we see people, like the communities people might live in right now, where mm -hmm. violence is also prevalent or where health disparities have existed historically are connected to communities where health dis disparities exist now. And the arc of those specific disparities might vary depending on the context. But what it is to say is that, you know, violence might beget violence, but like health disparities beget health disparities. And so, you know, thinking about it from like perspective of like the socio-ecological model, it, it's all inextricably connected. The exact causal effect relationships are going to vary, you know, depending on exactly what we're talking about. But it is to say that, you know, the past affects the present, affects the future. And those things, the through lines between those are history and culture. And so, you know, I think we, yeah, we have to, to think about kind of those health consequences right now, because that's what we're seeing happening right in front of us today. So the fact that, you know, Amaya Arbery was killed in the midst of a pandemic, you know, for nothing because people felt like that's what needed to be done. You know, that that brings up a whole host of issues that have to be discussed, you know, about why is it that people still feel like they're sanctioned to decide who gets to live and who can die? But also, why is it that once even once they it was known that they had killed 
Ahmad, why was it that the state of Georgia, the prosecutor responsible for, you know, arresting the two men, why did they blo- why did they hold off? They, it was someone who they knew. Yeah. They could have did it, but they waited, right? And so there's a mm-hmm. way in which, like, we can't wait to push these conversations of why are people not being held accountable, you know, to the law, even if the law ultimately isn't the tool to reconcile the different health disparities that we're up against, right? Or to the extent that it is, you know, we need to make sure that, you know, the issues that we're talking about today are, you know, very much at the forefront of policymakers and decision makers' minds, you know, as they're making their decision. Yeah, I think I I definitely agree with you. And, you know, I I just want to, you know, kind of wrap things up because, you know, I feel like you touched on everything that I wanted to hit on today. Um, But I kind of always end every segment with something that's called be on the lookout for. And I want to add a spin to that um, this time. It's like, what should we, you know, as, you know, people listening to this podcast, what should we be on the lookout for in terms, like you mentioned, the legacies of lynching? How, how can we correct this? How can we, you know, make it better? We, like you said, we went the policy route. We passed the bills through the House and the Senate, but now they're just sitting there, right? They're just sitting at a desk. They're not signed. They're not put into law. They're just proposed bills. So how do we, you know, what is a legacy for lynching and how can we correct it? I don't know. How do I say this? I don't know if we can fully reconcile all of the harms that of lynching in the United mm. States because we can't reconcile the irreparable damage of, you know, the long legacy of racial violence and genocide that mm. is a part of our history as the United States. You can't undo those things. But what you can do is commit to doing different moving forward. And what that looks like, at least from my vantage point, is for so long as those inequities have existed historically, so long should we invest in new interventions or new ways of being in the future. And so I say that to say, how do we think about you know what we should be doing right now? What are the things happening in your local community? Who are the people who are in need? Those things haven't changed in the midst of a pandemic but are even more important right now. You know, who are the who are the people who are struggling to um to keep a roof over their heads or to access um secure housing? Who yeah. are who are communities that are being boxed out from accessing public services? Who have access who who are in who are the communities that have needs? And that ultimately is always going to be the sounding board and the mobilization point because those are the same communities who are susceptible to lynchings violence, right? Mm. Communities who have contact with, you know, po- frequent contact with police departments or the carceral, different actors of the carceral state more broadly, you know, um, communities who uh, are under, where unemployment and underemployment is extremely high are likely to be exposed. It doesn't mean it's a sure, a guaranteed thing, right? But even communities that aren't necessarily that right. So you think about a case of someone like Amar Arbery. There's people who live all over the country who aren't necessarily located in communities around their kinfolk necessarily, but mm-hmm. we're at, a, at an elevated level to potentially experience racial violence depending on where we are, right? Yeah. 
And so making sure that, you know, if, if you are people who are in those communities, you know, that you get your neighbors or you find your people or the different organizations in your community and that y'all take a stand, right? You advocate for justice. You make sure that, you know, wherever you are, things like this aren't tolerated. And if they happen, you know, that you can make sure that it gets reported quickly, it gets documented, and that the sounding board goes out. Because it took almost two months. It basically took two months for mm. Ma Arbery's death to reach public consciousness. He was killed in February. Like, that boggles my mind, mm. right? But it took how long for those videos to start to surface, right? And from there, it took how long, you know, for them, uh, for the state to decide, well, we're going to think about arresting these people. We're going to arrest them. We may charge them. Okay, now we're going to charge them. And now you have to wait trial. And I'm not somebody who necessarily believes putting people on trial is the way that we're going to solve issues of socioeconomic justice or many, most health disparities. Mm -hmm. But I think, you know, where we see disparities existing and persisting, like those are the issues that we need to tackle. And those are the issues that people need to take up in their own way. Damn. Yeah, that that was amazing. Um, you know, Damar, thank you so much. You just came on the podcast and you just dropped so much knowledge. Like I always say dropping knowledge, but like this was just a whole like history lesson and a half, as well as just an explanation of what's going on. And uh, the listeners definitely needed this. And I'm just so glad you were able to come on the show today. Uh, thank you for having me and uh, keep up the great work. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Hey, y'all. So I know this episode was a lot longer than I usually do. As you know, I try my best to stick to the 30 minute limit. But because the information and the knowledge that Damar was dropping was so valuable, I was like, okay, we can extend it a little bit because I really want you guys to understand, you know, how policy work and how policy affects us, not only, you know, when it comes to politics and like our livelihoods, but also our health. You know, we don't think about, you know, things like lynching and police shootings as a health problem, but it is a public health problem. And I'm hoping that on this episode, you got the concept that I was trying to bring out. And one thing that I want to just highlight that Damar was saying is in, it's important that, you know, when we're dealing with things such as, you know, things that are related to like um, Ahmaud Arbery or other individuals who have lost their lives in such senseless ways in our country is that we make sure we start looking at our community around us. How can we change the things that are within our grasp? So I just want to inspire you to get involved in your local politics. I know the word politics is scary, but that affects how you move. That affects how you actually are able to live your life freely in this country and on this podcast, we want you to feel like you can live your life, your best life, without any restrictions. So thank you so much, you know, to stay on and listen to this podcast. I'm pretty sure you felt inspired. And as usual, remember, subscribe. <laughs> Make sure you tell a friend. And as always, we're going to have amazing content to come. So keep listening. This is Coloring Health Policy.